So we are continuing tonight uh, with Elijah. I'm just going to ask you to read with me from 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm just going to read beginning at verse 1. So that's 1 Kings chapter 18 and beginning at verse 1. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezreel, Jezebel was killing all the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you are not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I had a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Thank God for his word. Let's come and let's pray together. Father, we come before your word and as always we come with a sense of our own limitations and of our need for just the enabling of your spirit to understand and interpret and then to go beyond that and to actually apply this word to our lives. Father, help us to hear through what's shared. Help us to hear your word for our life and help us to respond in obedience to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, over the past few weeks, we've been looking together at the life of Elijah. And we've seen really how, after his initial spurt of service, that first sermon of his recorded in 1 Kings 17.1, how God took Elijah to the one side to prepare him for the much greater and more demanding acts of service that lay before him in the future. And he did this, first of all, by, by teaching Elijah that if he was in any way to remain faithful in service in the future, then he had to have both elements of kirith, that is, of time alone with the Lord, and also of zarephath, of involvement in ministry to the world. He needed both elements as part of his life. And Elijah was taught in a very practical way in verses 2 to 9 of 1 Kings 17 the necessity of getting the balance between these two right in his life. And then later in 1 Kings 17, in the time Elijah spent with an anonymous widow and her son, there Elijah was taught in the, the context of a situation of desperate need, much more about what the nature of service is, what the requirements of a servant are. And most importantly of all, in the resurrection of this widow's son, he was taught a lesson there as to how great the love and the power is of the God who always faithfully equips his servants for any task he calls them to. And so at the end of all of this, we find before us an Elijah who has is normal really in the ways of God, who has been tried, trained and tested through these smaller, lesser incidents for the much greater that are to come. <clears throat> you see, the Lord doesn't just drop Elijah in at the deep end, kind of calling out as he hits the bottom for the umpteenth time, this is the best way to learn how to do it. Sometimes God does that. But thankfully, that's not God's usual way of working. No, God has got a much greater and more gradual process that he goes through in preparing his servants. He takes us through the lesser to prepare us for the greater. And so we find Elijah at the end of chapter 17 standing there with the, the words of approval of this widow ringing in his ears. Now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So Elijah then undoubtedly is raring to go now. He's ready to get into these greater acts of service that the Lord has for him. Well what we're going to look at together now this week as Elijah does begin to get involved, at least begin to get involved in his major ministry, what we're going to look at now might surprise some of us. Because it is the problems of service. The problems that Elijah encountered. The kind of problems that we are likely to encounter as we really do begin to serve the Lord. And let's just get things clear at this point. That as we serve God, we will encounter problems.
problems and opposition. Be sure of that. How could we expect the situation to be otherwise, living as we do in a world that's dominated by the powers of evil, in a world where sin's influence is there to be seen in every sphere of life? But the wonderful thing is, though, that as we are open to God, as our lives are yielded or given over to God, then we will receive from our God all the strength and help that we need to overcome any problem that we might face. But let's look then at the kind of problems that Elijah had to face here as he sought to serve the Lord. Let's look at them, try and understand them and learn for them. Because as we do so, I'm sure we'll find our God guiding each of us towards the help we need to overcome our problems as we serve him, either here and now or in the future, lessons that we could hold on to. So Elijah's first problem then was the problem of delay. As verse 1 of chapter 18 says, after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now those words really say it all, don't they? After a long time. You see, Elijah felt that things needed to be done. He saw, he believed, just what needed to be done. And he wanted to get down to doing these things. And yet the Lord kept him there, chaffing at the bit in the relative obscurity of Zarephath, while in Israel, evil ran rampant under Ahab's rule. And drought and famine ravaged the land as the result. Of God's judgment. And Elijah longed to get to grips with this situation. The need was so desperate. It seemed so obvious. And yet the Lord held him back. The Lord delayed him. Why? Well, I'll just share with you what I see as two possible reasons that would seem to be relevant here to Elijah's situation. And then from this, I I want to extract an old and and well-worn And yet at the same time, too often forgotten spiritual principle that I believe has got relevance for each one of us as we seek to serve the Lord and maybe wonder why God seems to delay doing the things that we know need done now. The first of these reasons is because often in his patience and love, God holds back his hand in order to give men and women a chance to repent, an opportunity to turn from their sin and so escape the consequences of his judgment on their lives. This is a a consistent theme that you find in the Bible, but it's stated specifically in a very famous verse, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The other parallel reason why I believe God delays is to give evil a chance to ripen. You see, God so often lets evil run its course. He waits till all the glitter and the apparent glamour that evil sometimes disguises itself in. He waits until this has slipped away. He allows it to reveal then its true nature, its true ugliness, 
And then at that moment when God's judgment will be known for what it is and be seen also to be utterly justified, it's then that God strikes out. If you want a clear biblical example of this, then try Genesis 15, 16, which talks there of God holding back his judgment on the Amorites until it says their sin had reached its full measure. What's the principle here, though, that should help us to understand similar delays in our service for God? Well, it's quite simply the fact that the Lord's timing is not our timing. Because, you see, when we look at a situation, we can see it only from our limited perspective. As Elijah saw his situation, like him, we see what needs to be done. And we know, or we believe we know, what gifts and resources we have available. So then, when in some way the two of these seem to match and come together, well, quite naturally, we just want to see things happen, and happen now. But the Lord, you see, sees things from a much wider, an infinitely wider perspective. Because he's the God who knows what's going on in every human heart, in every human situation, and circumstances. And he's the Lord who stands above time. He's the Lord who knows what's at the beginning, what's at the end, and at every point in between. He's the God then <coughs> who knows every possible implication of every human action. You see, from our perspective, it's just a matter of, well, I do this, and that happens. But God sees what the ongoing effects of our actions will actually be. He sees the ripple, not on effect, as these things touch and change the lives of others. So he knows then precisely the time when things should be done. The right moment when things should happen. That we might be saved from causing disasters and also that we might be enabled to make the greatest possible positive impact. Delay then is a problem that we will encounter in serving the Lord. And all we can do when we are faced with delay is hang on in there, ready to serve, prepared but trusting in the perfect timing of God and waiting for that time to come. Well, moving on, Elijah's second problem in service was the problem of support. And we find this problem working its way out in his relationship with, with Obadiah. Now, to be fair to Obadiah, I think we do have to record and say that in many ways, Obadiah was a remarkable man. And that he did at times give a fair and, and more than a fair degree of support to Elijah. He was remarkable. For he was, after all, a man who remained faithful to the Lord, even while acting as the right-hand man of Ahab, one of Israel's most unfaithful kings. Verse 3 here makes specific mention of the fact that Obadiah was a devout believer. Not just a surface on the front, but a devout believer in the Lord. Now, we might find it strange here that a king such as Ahab might have someone like Obadiah in his service. But that, though, in itself really says something 
about Obadiah's integrity and about the reality of his faith because Ahab obviously recognized in this follower of the Lord certain qualities, special qualities, moral qualities like honesty and loyalty that couldn't be found in those others who, like him, followed false gods. And in this relationship here between the two, really, we see the words of Proverbs 16, 17, 16, 7 fulfilled. It says there, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. But you know, what I think for me seems even stranger than that is that here, a man like Obadiah should be willing to work for a king like Ahab. That I find strange. However, I'm pretty sure that if Obadiah was here tonight and able to defend himself, that he would soon let us know that he didn't do this for the sake of prestige and material gain, and certainly not for fun. No, because serving such a king must at times have been at least a touch repugnant for him and involved him in a fair degree of danger. Because, you see, there was always the possibility that Ahab, this king who'd rejected God, remember, and suffered greatly because of it, at some time that he would turn against and put his bile out on this faithful servant of God who stood by his side. So you see, I'm pretty sure that Obadiah would tell us that there was one reason and there was one reason only why he did this. And this was so that he could maybe in some way influence Ahab and his government for the Lord and for the good, and so maybe save the nation from perhaps the worst excesses of his corrupt power. And certainly it's the, <clears throat> the most noteworthy example of this that we find Obadiah sharing with Elijah in verse 13 when he, he meets him at that point in the, the context of his search for food, for livestock, for Ahab, where he says, Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. However, having said all these good things, notice the context in which this is said. It's in the context of a terrified protest from Obadiah, who's fearful that he should be the one to go until Ahab, Elijah is here. You see, Ahab has already searched furiously, everywhere around for Elijah, everywhere he could think of. And Obadiah, he just doesn't want to stand out again and be marked again as the one who takes this news to him. Ahab's already probably got his secret doubts about him. He doesn't need this kind of attention drawn to himself. And even worse than that, what if Elijah should then disappear again? What if he should be hidden by the Lord again. As far as Obadiah is concerned, this just doesn't even bear thinking about. Verse 12, I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. And if I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Now eventually, under protest and no doubt with his knees knocking, Obadiah does as he's told. But I believe what's important for us to take note of here is that as faithful a man as Obadiah was, 
His support for Elijah only went so far. And just a little bit further on in Elijah's great crisis moment, there on Mount Carmel, there even Obadiah deserts him. Now you see this problem of a lack of support, especially in those crisis moments when you need support more than any other time. This is one that every faithful servant of the Lord is going to eventually, if not continually, come face to face with. And you know, not everyone will be like Obadiah. Not everyone will even go with us most of the way. No, there'll be some, and usually, sometimes at least, it's those who cry out with the greatest enthusiasm at the beginning of our work. There is some who will just simply not be there a little further along the road. And you know, let's be honest. Life being as it is, and we being the weak human beings that we are, well, the chances are that the best of us will at some point prove to be Obadiahs. All of us. Promising maybe so much in terms of support, but when it comes down to actually delivering so very little. But the real question, I believe, that we have to try and answer here is what do we do when we're in the position of Elijah? What do we do when expected support, anticipated support, deserved support, either never appears or if it does, fizzles out. Well, I would say, you just look at the example here of Elijah. He didn't nag at his failed supporters. He didn't gripe and complain. He didn't rant and rave. No, he just got on with his business of serving the Lord. He didn't look at what others were doing or he didn't complain about what they weren't doing. No, he just got on with what was said, set before him. Admittedly and understandably, towards the end of his ministry, he did break down and cry out to the Lord in chapter 19, verse 10, where he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenants, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. But you know, even this, this word of complaint, is actually spoken when he's alone with the Lord and when he is at the end of his terror. Now, what important lessons there are, I believe, that we can glean and draw out of this. For instance, I remember when I was in my, my first church, it's a while ago now, Burtry Hill in Irvine. Now, and this church was a small church and there was only a very small core of committed believers. And one or two of them got more than a little bit peeved at times by the lack of enthusiasm they saw around them. And I think I was exactly the same. I felt the same. And then we had a visit from Lewis Misselbrook, who at that point was working with the Baptist Union. And what he did, he used to go around churches, and he came to our church to do an assessment, a report on our church life. And it was fantastic, so perceptive. I wish people were still doing that in the Baptist Union today. But anyway... Among other things in that report, immediately he put his finger right on this problem. And he said, and I, and I quote here, 
that if people are to be drawn into the work of the church, they need to be wooed and won by the love of Jesus, not chided and chippy. Of course, how true that is. Nagging and complaining at people in the flesh gets us nowhere. We maybe might for a, a little while get a few press men and women, but people, are, they don't hang around long. When the going gets tough, they're gone. They're gone. No, it's, it's by getting people to look to Jesus. It's as they're, as they're overwhelmed and inspired by his love, by his spirit of service. It's as they're passionate about Jesus. It's then that we'll find more and more people in the church who are faithful and committed in service. And you know, really, as well as this, when is we serve the Lord? We serve him. We don't gripe or complain about what others are doing or not doing. But we just keep on loving and keep on serving. Well, so then we show that what motivates our service, that what's going on in our hearts, is right as well. Because, you see, if we really are serving, out of a love for the Lord and his people, and if we are being motivated and empowered by that love of Jesus, which 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, among other things, is patient, not easily angered, that keeps no record of wrongs, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. If that's what's going on inside us, well then regardless of other people and what they're doing, we won't be able to stop ourselves. We won't be able to help but keep on and ongoing and serving because Jesus didn't and certainly Elijah couldn't but when our reaction to the lack of support and service in service that we get from others is to nag and complain when we're always looking at them pointing the finger at them and complaining then I believe that we prove by our actions no matter what we might claim by our words we prove by our actions and our attitudes that something other than a love for the Lord is our inspiration. You see, it's really been just an act of the flesh. We've been doing it in the flesh. Maybe so we can feel good about ourselves. Maybe so we can bask in the praise of others. But we certainly haven't been doing it for the love of God. That's what we prove. When we react in this way. And you know, in the end, with this kind of attitude, no matter how hard we work, it's spiritually worthless. It means nothing to God. So support, or rather a lack of support, was Elijah's second problem of service. And the way he responded to that was to keep on loving, to keep on going. To keep on serving the Lord. And how I pray that by the grace of God, we'll find the strength from him that enables us to react in the same way. Elijah's third problem, though, in service was the problem here of antagonism. The problem of antagonism. We find this in Ahab's first comment to Elijah. That moment when they come face to face. The great showdown. Verse 17. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, 
Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now you see, this is an aspect of the Christian life that we don't really hear that much about today. Because we, we concentrate so much of our time and our effort and our energy of our service in trying to make friends with the world. And that is an important part of our faith. I'm, I'm not going to say that's wrong. But you know, at the same time, it does sometime, sometimes worry me that there seems so often to be, to be missing alongside this an uncomfortable but an equally important aspect of Christian living. And that is that, that while, of course, not trying deliberately to be offensive or provocative, Yet there should nevertheless be an offence about our Christianity. Some people should be offended by our Christianity if we really are faithfully loving and serving the Lord. There should be a degree of offence in the sense that there should be a challenge about our life. There should be something about us, about the way we live and love and serve By this, people should be brought face to face with the reality of our God, of his holiness, his love, and of his judgment on their lives. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, he once called Christianity God's attack upon man. And there is a truth about that. Our Christianity, the way we live out our faith, It should at times cut people to the quick. And if we don't at some time challenge and cause offence by the way we live, if we don't like Elijah at some point arouse antagonism, then I fear there must be something vital missing. As I look at the life of Elijah, then it seems to me that it, it may well be that quality of total and complete obedience to God as we serve him that we go so far but we don't go all the way with the Lord that we're more Obadiahs than Elijah's notice interestingly the way that Elijah responded here to Ahab's attack verse 18 he says I have not made trouble for Israel but you And your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands. And you have followed the Baals. You see, he put the blame then right back where it belonged. Not in what he was saying or what he was doing. Because he was testifying to the God of Israel. But rather, it was in the way that Ahab himself was living. And it was in what lay at the heart of his life, of who he is That total insecurity that led him not to trust in his own God, but to seek instead the instant material blessings promised by Baal. It was Ahab looking to this world. That was the problem. So Elijah's third problem then, as he served, was antagonism. And the way he dealt with it was by pointing out that the real root of the problem here didn't lie in him. Or anything about him. But rather it lay in the hearts of those who opposed the Lord. Elijah's final problem, and we'll deal with it briefly, was solitude. 
Because it's easy to imagine here, isn't it? How alone Elijah must have felt at different points along the way. The long delay before his ministry started, that could easily have led to him feeling a little bit distant from God. The God who seemed to have forgotten him and seemed to put him on the shelf to the one side. And then when he actually does get started, what does he find? That his support disappears and his antagonists, his enemies, they come rushing to meet him. It wouldn't be difficult then, would it? To imagine Elijah feeling a bit alone in the world of men. And you know, the truth is that all true servants of God know something of this experience of solitude as they serve the Lord. I mean, you need look no further than than Jesus and, and that ultimate act of service on the cross because there as Jesus took upon himself the burden of our sin. And as for that moment in time, that sin led to a breakdown in his eternal fellowship with the Father, the Father whose holiness would not even let him look upon his Son, clothed in our sin. And so on the cross, as Jesus suffered there, the worst kind of solitude imaginable. We find that expressed, don't we? In that heart-rending cry from the cross, Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, the resurrection proves, doesn't it? That though he of all men was for that instant alone, yet he was not left alone. And Elijah too, as we'll see, is soon to find that in the mighty work of his ministry, that he is not really alone either. And that's the real truth of the matter. That though in our times of service, when people stand back from us, when the work is hard and we don't sense the presence of God, that though we might at times in the midst of that feel alone, yet we are never truly alone. Because God is always there. God is always at the side of his faithful servants. He's always there and always ready to empower us and support us, ready to love us through whatever challenge we're facing. What Elijah learned through his life experience was more and more to turn to this God. To more and more be open and submissive to his God. And by this, so more and more to draw on the resources of his God. I say, may we learn, each one of us, the same lesson. Because you see, as we do, although the problems of service will never disappear, they'll always be there. Yet what we will find is that even in these problems... That service and Christian living is still the joy that God wants it to be. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for just this incredible example of Elijah. A man who was given this hard calling from you. 
called to share a message of judgment on your people. And he knew the anguish and the pain. He felt the pain of that. Who in so many ways, maybe at times felt alone, felt deserted. Faced by antagonism, by people turning their back upon him. And yet, Lord, he was to find that as he kept on going for you, that no matter how he felt, that you were by his side. And Lord, it's the same for each one of us. You want each one of us here tonight who know you in Christ to know that you are by our side, that you will never desert us, that you're always with us, and that you are able, able to carry us through. We praise you. We worship and adore you. In Jesus' name, amen.